0: I'm Andy Paul with my special guest, Bridget Gleason. Bridget, how are you today?
1: I'm doing great, Andy. Good morning. Did
0: you get your run in this morning?
1: I did. I did. It's one of these things that I, I have to do. Well, I was going to say if I have to get up at four in the morning, I do get up at four in the morning um, to get my run in. I do it as much for my mental health as I do for my physical health. So it's just it's definitely part of my day.
0: Now, How do you feel about running in the dark by yourself?
1: I feel fine. Okay <laughs> <laughs> I've done it, Andy, for so long. I don't think I really allow myself the luxury of an option. If I don't do it first thing in the morning, it doesn't get done. And what I've uh, told people here and they think I'm crazy, is I listen to I listen to books when I'm running, and I get totally lost. I know a lot of people lost in the book, not lost on the streets. yeah, and a lot of people listen to music, but I I love listening, listening to books. So I do a lot of I li- listen to a lot of business books or sales books or bi- just all kinds of things. But it's so it's something I look forward to every morning.
0: All right. Well, here's hope you don't encounter a wild mountain lion or something in your your run. So I did see a, a video online yesterday that <laughs> that uh, some woman was on a hike in Florida on this boardwalk, going through mm. this swampy area. And she's mm. taking video on her phone and just looking at the scenery, and then suddenly pans up, the, up this boardwalk, which is about maybe four feet wide, right? And you go this clump, 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 and this mountain lion is charging at her <laughs> at a high rate of speed. Doesn't have anything to do with her. It just runs right by her as if she's not in there. She's going oh my God, oh my God, oh my God.
1: Andy, that's hilarious. I mean, it's <laughs> hilarious because nothing happened. That would have scared the oh, yeah. day she like was, that. It sounded
0: like she was a woman there by herself. Maybe somebody was standing behind her. I don't know. She panned the camera. It's The, the big cat went by and and uh, no one was behind her. I think she was out walking by herself and came across this full grown mountain lion that had someplace to go in a hurry and it didn't involve her. Whatever, the, whatever mission the cat was on, it decided it didn't have any time for her. So,
1: Classic, yeah, classic, yeah. Classic. So,
0: well, good. Well, we're we'll skip the weather today since we just had our. Yeah, uh, we.
1: That's right. We, we we're on to other things. We're on like other things. In the dark. So, wanted to
0: talk about the complex enterprise sale today, and certainly something you're involved with. Assume a Logic. I spent years doing that. so uh, I said, selling very large deals. So. I guess we we'll want to talk to sort what's changing in that environment because there's been a lot of books written and people talking these days about the changes that exist in the complex enterprise sale environment. So I guess I'd first ask, you know, what you've seen that's changed, let's say over the last five to ten years, and you know, we'll leave out the impact of the internet. Yeah, we all know that's 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 had big changes. What else have you seen?
1: Well, I've seen that, as you said, I we we have complex enterprise sales here. At Sumo Logic, the team I manages that I manage is the the SMB and mid-market team. So, the companies that we deal with are sub-1,000 employees. Mm-hmm. So, what's interesting, though, because we're dealing with uh, we do, we do log management. So, a very small company may have a very large deal. And so, I think one of the things that's changing is this sort of enterprise sale or a big deal or a complex sale is not solely based anymore on just the size of the company. Like you can't you can't make the delineation, okay, it's a big company, it's gonna be complex. It's a smaller company, it's less complex. Right. It may be more complex, a larger company because there will be more stakeholders, but The technology is just as complex. So there are issues that the team has that um, are the same whether it's a small deal or a big deal. And I think that is I think that's one of the differences that I've seen. I I would say the second is any of the studies that I've seen and read show that there are more decision makers Mm -hmm. now involved than there were, let's say, Andy, when you and I were selling in the dark ages, for those of you who don't know that, that it it was, you would have more discreet decision makers where now there's so much of it is done um, I don't want to say by consensus, but a lot of people involved even in smaller price points, uh, smaller companies, there are more decision makers involved in a deal.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. Let's let's spend a minute on that because yeah, certainly that data's out there. The CEB has talked about that in their their latest book about five point four decision makers on every deal. Uh, yeah, that to me that really let's say selling to large enterprise to me that's that's not a whole lot different than than what my direct experience was selling to to major companies and the largest companies in the world is that yeah there were always multiple buyers, not just in I mean and not just uh, you know, influencers, but people that are, yeah, at the end of the day, they were sitting around a table making a decision. Yeah, the CEO you know, might sign off on it, but it was still being recommended by a committee, by a group of people for the CEO to sign off on.
1: So, yeah, so maybe it hasn't changed for the large, complex deals. Yeah, we've always had a lot of buyers there. I think you move further down mm-hmm. and you have more buyers. So, perhaps this concept of an enterprise sale and a, or a complex sale, or whatever you want to call it, is it's not isolated anymore to just the largest companies.
0: Right. And the complexity really comes from really the product you're selling as opposed to the complexity of dealing with a large enterprise.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's two things. I think it's the, the, the complexity of the product as well as the complexity of the decision making process mm-hmm. and the number of people involved. And I'll tell you, it can be as difficult and and painful to get something through a smaller organization that is highly siloed and not a lot of cross-collaboration communication and trying to get everybody on the same page as it is a larger company who has probably had a bit more experience in working cross Uh, cross-functionally and more collaboratively. So there are different challenges, but it's not only the product, but it's also the decision-making process that can um, create complexity and can slow a deal down.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the issues of complexity selling to small and mid-sized enterprises is that their perception of risk is different than the large enterprise. And I think that perception of the risk of making that decision is really what oftentimes contributes to Sort of the elongation of the the buying process on the part of the customer because it's it's harder to pull the trigger for them.
1: Yeah, and and it's ju- it's their perception, it's their perception of risk. And just as you were saying that, Andy, I was thinking about that. You know, for a large company, you're we're dealing in bigger numbers, bigger impact, bigger groups, bigger visibility across the org if they make a mistake, and. So prevailing wisdom may say, gosh, that's a bigger risk. However, you go to smaller companies that, yeah, it's not the magnitude, but relatively speaking, they may have the same perception as of it being a huge risk as a larger company that maybe the deal size is 10x what a small company is. Mm -hmm. But when you look at it, relatively speaking, both feel that this is these are risky to to make a move, so I, I don't think we can i don't think we can assume that because it's a smaller company and a smaller deal size that they don't view it as risky
0: oh yeah, no, I was saying they maybe i wasn't clear i mean i I think part of the reason in small companies and small enterprises, the deals take longer because they do believe it's riskier
1: yeah relative I
0: agree. to relative to their deal size so yeah, if I wasn't clear, that's the point I was trying to make. Is is that's sometimes why you can sell the same product at the same price point to a larger enterprise and a smaller enterprise, and you would think, oh, the smaller enterprise would be more nimble and there are fewer levels of decision makers and influencers, and they can gather to make a decision more quickly. And it just really doesn't work that way most times. And I I think it takes as long sometimes, if not as you mentioned, oftentimes longer for the smaller company just because they're. They understand the risk involved, and it's a bigger impact on them one way or another if it doesn't work out.
1: Well, I'm glad. I may have been the only one who missed the point there, Andy, and got it the other way around. And I think it's it's, there's also this perception, because I agree with you 100%. It's it's risky also for these smaller companies. There's this perception that an SMB sale or even a mid-market sale should be a high-velocity sale. And meaning it should just be quick. They're gonna make decisions quick. It's yeah, a smaller dollar amount. Doesn't it's, work that way. It does not work that way. But and especially when you, you get let's say if if and I've I've seen this, uh, I've seen this also where you have, let's say, sales leadership that comes from a, let's say an enterprise or field-oriented um background. Again, if they're not in it, the the perception and the understanding is well. The smaller deals it should just be quicker, and they model it that way and they set it up that way. And the reality, as you point out, is is not that at all. And they're they're in for a big surprise and not a good one.
0: Yeah, I mean, a good rule of thumb is, and I know it's different with SaaS sales, but I mean, you know, people aren't selling SaaS products is with small mid-size mid-cap enterprises is is, you know, total deal size, total commitment that they're making, you know, what fraction of their revenues does that equal? Right? I mean it's if it's gonna be oftentimes you'll see, and certainly it was experiences I had for a long time, is yes it was you know, it was a much higher percentage of their annual revenue than the large enterprises we were selling to. So that's sort of where people begin their sort of perception of the risk. is like, okay, this is a huge dollar investment for us this better be the right decision. And we're going to take more time to evaluate this and really make sure we're making the best decision. Now, granted, there is no best decision, but I mean, that's, that's sort of the perspective they take on it.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And that's, that's a good thing for everyone to keep in mind is it's, you know, percentage of revenue.
0: It's just a rule of thumb. I mean, it, it's just a place to start. You know, if you're wondering, okay, why is this deal seeming to take so long? Well, really, yeah, what, you know, how, how big is this deal compared to their sales? Right. Um, So one of the things that's sort of in line with that is that I've been reading about and hearing more about from from companies out there out you know selling is that buyers seem to be more focused now, sort of on really making sure they really understand the the economic impact of the purchases they're making, and and you know it's putting more pressure on on sellers to you know really deliver the goods in terms of of you know the insights and the, the knowledge and the even the data they provide the buyer to help them understand the value they're really going to extract from the, the investment they're making.
1: Do you think that's different, Andy, than what we experienced when we were selling, again, back when dinosaurs Well, that's why I was discovered. asking the
0: question, because I, I, you know, I've I been seeing this more and, and hearing this talked about, but it's like, okay, well, you know because it seemed like yeah, everybody always wanted to make a good financial decision, but there are people contending that Buyers even more focused on it now. I was wondering if you're seeing that and what you do.
1: I'm seeing it, but I don't know. I guess from my perspective, I don't know that I'm seeing it more or less than I've ever seen it. That's people have cared about it uh, as long as I can remember. Maybe it's that there are. It's easier to do an evaluation. It's easier to again, there's so much information out there that w- would enable you to do it more easily and to compare different offerings and what the ROI is. I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't say that. I, I I don't think there's any more emphasis on it than there ever was before.
0: Well, I think part of what, what what's being driven by is that, and we've seen Reports of this, I've you know been in the newspapers even about yeah how technology investments in technology really aren't paying off the way that that in terms of productivity you know whatever you know level of measure people are using is that they're not haven't really been paying off the way that that people expected, and so now it's like going back and saying okay well what what are we going to do different to really analyze this to make sure we truly understand what we're going to get out of this. So well, I don't. I don't think. I don't think it was necessarily that it was oversold, but I think that you know people were, were buyers were accepting the assumptions maybe too easily, and so now they're saying, look, after you know fifteen twenty years of really seriously investing in technology and seeing what the impacts are or are not, uh, yeah, we've you know this is what we have to do now to make sure we really understand what we're going to get from this.
1: Boy, I, I, I have a smile on my face because I'm thinking about. Our CFO, again, looking at our sales stack, you and I talked about in, in a previous conversation, mm-hmm. looking at our sales stack and saying, why do you need all these tools? What's the return on investment? How is it, help? like always wants to know what the return on investment's going to be. And I tell you, I'm challenged sometimes, especially, and I'm talking just about sales tools, but you, know, you look at anything, I, I'm sure people say the same about Sumo Logic and log management, how do you how do you justify the and how do you analyze the return on investment given other tools they may have that that to address something similar? It's it's a challenge to know how to measure how to measure it and define it and sort of tease out what is this particular tool or service or product going to be able to provide in terms of return and that's hard to do.
0: Yeah, well I think that's that was what sort of motivated that first question is and I think some of the, the writing and talking that's going on about this topic is, yeah, how how do you, as decision makers, they're really now putting the pressure on, I think, on sellers to say, okay, you, you gotta give us some more so we really understand you know what the what the ROI is gonna be. I'm not sure what yeah, that more yeah. is. I mean and that sort of goes of a piece is is in the complex sale, you know, buyers are looking for more. You know the term that we see all the time: more business acumen from the seller uh, to really, and I think that's part of what's driving it. It's, it's, yeah, we've made these investments before, but the assumptions we made when we made the decision, you know, turned out not to be reflected in reality once we had used it. Not that it was a negative, but it maybe we just didn't reach as far with it as we thought we were going to go.
1: Right. Yeah. We we get. Uh, prospects and customers asking us for that kind of information frequently here at Sumo Logic. And, you know, we've put in ROI calculators that they can go and put in their people costs and different assumptions. And this like most things is, is a tool that needs to be continually tweaked and revised and updated as realities, as realities change and some customers look at it or prospects and say, God, that's really helpful. Others say, that doesn't give me an accurate ROI at all. <laughs> you know, so I think people are struggling to figure out how to justify, and it's not only the, the seller that's... Well, the reason that the seller is interested in this is because the buyer needs a way to promote it internally. So I think they're trying to answer the question for themselves, but then also they're trying to answer the questions they're getting from other parts of the org.
0: Yeah, and I think for buyers, you know, their conundrum is they said, look, somebody will turn to them and said, well, hey, you know, the last time we did this, your recommendation was we're gonna get, you know, X percent of return on this or X percent improvement in productivity. And yeah, we got improvement, but it wasn't to that level, right? It's X minus one or X minus two when we thought we were gonna be at X. And yeah, that's sort of a credibility issue for somebody that really has the primary the primary outcome is at stake, and they're the one responsible for that that primary outcome. yeah, so I think what things they're and this I think this sort of talks about um, you know how you how do you sell to some of these accounts is you know one of the key things is you know we've got this environment now where maybe there's a little more due diligence going in on on the decision. the economic part of the decision is, is how do you identify who it is you're supposed to be talking to?
1: And when you say who it is you're supposed to be talking to, do you mean in terms of the economic decision, making the economic decision?
0: Well, not just the economic decision, because it's, I think that, that you know, this is one of the problems I see a sort of failure mode for sales reps, especially in, in less complex deals, is not really spending the right amount of time selling to the right people that have the biggest not necessarily, have the biggest influence, but also the, with the most at stake in the outcome. You know, there's, there's so much talk about how ah, you got to sell to the C-suite, sell to the Sweet suite so on. Great. Your major accounts, certainly at times you need to do that. But oftentimes, you know, I relate back to one client I worked with that had a really large deal, multiple millions of dollars a year deal with this one company. And then when I first started working with them, they were concerned about preserving this account and actually growing the account, which we, we did by quite a bit. But they didn't know at that time who, in this large dispersed organization where they had multiple buying points, buying their services, they didn't know who had the most at stake in the outcome of the service they provided.
1: Well, and it's, it's, uh, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like one person. I think it goes back to what you and I were talking about earlier in this conversation, which is multiple people are involved in the the buying process and the decision making process, and that does make it more complex for salespeople because it's not tar- you're not targeting one person. Okay, I found the decision maker. No, you've got to go and find and identify and connect with all the people involved in the decision making process. And that is that can be tricky and challenging and that's a skill in and of itself.
0: And how do you develop that skill?
1: Well, I think with a lot of like a lot of things, Andy, it's practice.
0: It's but there's something when you're coaching people that you know are sort of yeah maybe been in the business for a while but maybe taking the step up in terms of you know selling a product of this this complexity or to customers of that complexity what do you find are their their most common failure modes and how do you coach them through that
1: what i see is people getting too sales reps getting too excited because they found someone in the decision making process who is a is a champion or they've they've identified one person and they haven't dug deep enough to understand and identify all the other players and how they're connected and how influential they are or aren't. Mm -hmm. And so then the deal will get stalled or it'll get blocked or it'll get stopped because they've stopped short of doing the investigation they really need to do to make sure that they understand fully who's involved. And sometimes, Andy, even within a company that they're selling into, The people they're talking to don't know who the other people are until they start to go to try to get something purchased. And I'm talking about kind of SMB Mm mid-market.
0: Well, it's true at large enterprises as well. And at
1: large enterprises for sure. But I'm saying definitely at SMB mid-market, they don't always know. So it's not that anyone has been uh, not up front with them. It's that it may be a more siloed organization and they're encountering people as they go through the process of trying to buy something that they hadn't realized had a say in in the decision. So,
0: Yeah, and I think also one of the common things I see in, in those environments is people sort of get excited, reps get excited about dealing with what I call false champions, which are people who overestimate their own influence (laughs) in the scheme of things who may be very enthusiastic, but can't move the needle and can't influence other people internally. And that is one of the most common failure modes you really have to be careful for if you're dealing with a complex sale is, yeah, you've got a champion, but they're not really able to, to make it happen.
1: Yeah, that's a super good point. See that frequently.
0: Yeah. So, um, other thing I want to talk about then is is uh, millennials as decision makers in complex sales is you know again we're seeing now you know generationally generationally as I easy for me to say is yeah now millennials coming into the decision making ranks and what influence are you seeing that have on the buying process, the sales process, or whatever.
1: Um. Well, I mean, I see them as. You mean, how do they maybe make decisions? Yeah. More quickly, or, or um, differently. D- differently, yeah. Well, they are definitely the ones that are coming into uh, coming into these positions where they are making um, where they are making decisions. How have I seen it? Gosh, I don't know. That's a it's a good question. I don't know if it's um, I don't know if that's why if that's one of the reasons why there's more collaborative decision making and more people mm. involved. It could be because that's that's definitely a millennial trait. Um
0: Yeah, know people put that forth as as potential reason that do seeing more decision makers, but millennials be a little more collaborative, more consensus or consensus oriented. Um, certainly could contribute to that.
1: Yeah, I'd have to think about it. I don't have, um, I haven't thought about it in that way, and it's it's probably worth it. It's probably worth some thought because I know it does and will continue to impact. Um, it just the sales process, what it looks like, the decision making process. Um, definitely, as in other areas, uh, definitely has an impact.
0: Okay. Well, good. Well. That was my last question for today. And um, we'll give you time to think about that. You have a week (laughs) until we come back. Great. And we'll, we'll lead off with that question the next time. So my guest today, as always on Frontline Friday, my very special guest, Bridget Gleason. Bridget, great to talk to you.
1: Great to talk to you as well.
0: And thank you everybody for tuning in. And we'll look forward to talking to you next Friday.
1: All right. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to the show.